It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show on Monday afternoons and this show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us and that helps others find the show. My name is Kay Wenningle and today I'm joined by my co-host Kira Rundle. Hi. And Nat Bucknell. Hello, everyone. And did you know a TV week next week? Uh, that hadn't escaped my attention entirely. <laughs> You've probably been hearing a lot about the alleged disaster some week about to have in terms of electricity reliability. Headlines such as power cuts may hit as many as 1.3 million Victorian homes this summer from the age. The ABC saying New South Wales and Victoria warned of summer blackout risks if power supplies don't improve. The Australian Financial Review headlines, Victoria prone to blackout this summer as grid wilts. What are we going to do? <laughs> it's pretty tragic, really. <laughs> it's I'm not go- looking good. I might go overseas. <laughs> to help us unpack this and to make sense of it all, we have our expert, Dylan McConnell, from the Australian German Climate and Energy College. Dylan is a chemical engineer with experience in the en- as an energy analyst and has a detailed understanding of the cost structure of energy technologies and the electricity market. Hi Dylan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, g'day, it's great to be here. Dylan, the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, has released a report saying that amongst other things, Victoria may be in for blackouts this summer. Is that the source of the dire headlines that I mentioned? And if it is, is it a fair statement of... Events. Yeah, that's certainly the source of, of a lot of this uh, conjecture, but I don't think it's it's not technically a, a fair summary of what what's actually contained in that report. Um, they do they do highlight there is a heightened risk of uh, a, a blackouts this summer, but that's not um, it's not as dire as it's been presented in the in the media. That's for sure. Um, I guess there's a couple of things that need to be taken into account. The first is that. Um, it's impossible to have a 100% reliable power system. Um, well, we never have had, have no, we? Well, no, it's not worth trying because it would be very incredibly expensive. You cannot basically um, plan for every possible combination of things. And, and what AEMO does is look at a whole range of scenarios and a whole range of um, uh, potential outcomes and tries to minimise the risk across the whole the whole lot. Um, and if if you look at what they've actually said, there there, there is a there is a risk of blackouts if the two, well, uh, two um, units down in the Latrobe Valley are out of action. And Which they are at the moment, I think. They are. They're, they're under um, maintenance and they're, they're basically planning to bring, bring them back online before summer, before Christmas. Now, if that doesn't happen and there's a unit at a gas-fired power station in um, Western Victoria, the Mortlake Power Station, um, if that also doesn't happen, and then if they also don't don't use their emergency reserves, and if they also don't 
draw on some power resources from um, South Australia. And if they also don't use the emergency diesel generators, then yes, there is a risk of um, <laughs> load shedding. So there's mm. quite a lot of things have to happen for that um, particular scenario to, to eventuate. Um, and I guess it's a question of if that's a, if that's, that's a question for society, if that's an unacceptable risk or not, because addressing that particular set of circumstances is, is just very expensive. So from your assessment, it's pretty low risk and too expensive to cover anyway. It's not so much um, – it's, it's just a, yeah, it's a question that we have to answer as a society. It's not, not that it's – I mean, there's probably – I think they've characterised it as a one in five chance of, you know, having unserved energy above a particular threshold. Now, that's, that's not actually necessarily um, a breach of the reliability standard or, um, you know uh, – a bad thing. It's just that we, we have to understand that there are costs and benefits of actually trying to to remove that. Um, and that's yeah. Th- I mean, there's always there's always a risk of blackout um, at any any time. Something can go wrong. It's just a, a matter of what we're willing to accept and what we're willing to pay for. And so, what's special about this year compared to previous years? The main thing is that that, that there's these two units that are. Um, that are out of service and that they're both supposed to be back online before Christmas. But if for some reason that those, those, the gas plant and the, um, the coal plant, if that, if their return to service is delayed, then then there is a heightened risk of having to have some load shedding. The the, the fact of the matter is that coal plants are more and more, becoming more and more unreliable, especially in Victoria, isn't it? Yeah. the data from AMO definitely points to that, particularly over the last few years. They've had more um, unscheduled outages, uh, and that's, I guess, to be expected as plants age, that they will become less reliable. So that's unsurprising. As part of this report or, or as part of this article, AEMO call for urgent action, including speeding up investment in new transmission lines between states and the creation of electricity supply reserve to deal with these increasingly unreliable generators. So given that fossil fuel generators all over Australia have been notoriously unreliable, as we've just discussed, why isn't this happening? Why why aren't we making those changes more quickly? Um, I I think there's a lot of investment uncertainty and a lot of – because it is a market-led system, um, there there are projects out there to essentially – well, that would – address this but there's also a lot of uncertainty because we don't have a, a federal um, climate and energy policy um, and we also have interventions coming from the federal government in the form of things like snowy 2.0 um, or this underwriting new generation investment scheme so if, if there were pri- private invest if there were projects from the private sector they're perhaps holding back a little bit or they're a bit uncertain about what what these other things are going to do so yeah they're, they're not necessarily progressing as fast or yeah, there's, the uncertainty means that they won't necessarily be um, coming so if through. We, if we didn't have Snowy 2 as a proposed project, private investors would be more likely to jump in and fill the gaps. Well, I, I think that there's there's a whole handful of projects around the country that are that would you know ideally address some of these reliability challenges. But the 
just the prospect of of the government tipping in money to some of these these projects means that well why why would we mm-hmm. put our money up for this project um, if the government's just going to come and build something on top of it or over, around it anyway? So it's not necessarily a bad thing that the the government is you know it's a, that's a bigger question about whether you have a, a market system or a um, sort of more centrally planned uh, government run system. But at the moment we've sort of got a hodgepodge of both. Um, yeah, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, that the government is investing, but we don't have really the right, I guess, framework or um, processes in place for that to to happen. So we've sort of in this this halfway house where. And we were going to touch on that a little bit later, but um, this framework seems to be coming up all the time, and the federal government isn't making the decisions that it has to make. What happens then? Is it up to the states, the COAG, to get together and start addressing this? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's important to remember that um, energy policy is actually a state issue. It, it's it's constitutionally it sits with the states. It's not the federal government actually doesn't have a lot of levers to pull. I mean, they they definitely do with, with respect to emissions, but with respect to actually energy policy and the rules and regulations around energy, that's actually a state. State matter. Is that the same with transmission infrastructure? Um, yes, in a, in the sense that that is yeah, the, the, the transmission infrastructure sits under the national electricity rules as well, um, and they they are all part of this this uh, you know broader framework. But I guess um, yeah, it's quite possible, and this is why we're seeing I guess state a lot of state led action is because there hasn't been a great deal of um, yeah um, certainty or policy leadership at the federal level. So why are they being criticised for that? That's a very good question, and <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, but, you know, if we see, if you see, um, I guess, I guess the emissions component of it is is a federal issue because because we that's a subject to an international treaty, and that's definitely in the the jurisdiction of the, the federal government. Um, and so, the states doing more action on um, on emissions front is that's actually not in there their jurisdiction technically speaking so there, there's basically an overlap and mismatch between between the levels of government okay well there's a lot more questions that have just been <laughs> raised with that but let's get on to again AEMO um, and I think the energy security board they've been working on the what's called the integrated system plan mm-hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit more about that plan yeah sure so the, the they're working on their second integrated system plan at the moment. Um, so there was one that's already been released? Yes, there was one yep. that was released probably over 12 months ago now. And it's actually a sort of continuation of a process that they've done for a very, very long time. It used to be – there's a process that they called um, the National Transmission Network Development Plan, the NTNDP as it was known. And they've done that for over a decade. Um but yeah, about yeah, uh, two years ago now, I guess they've they've moved to this integrated system plan, as they call it. Um, but it essentially serves the same functions in, um, in that it, the idea is that they guess, sketch out potential future pathways or pe- potential developments of the grid um, with the view to identifying where transmission investment might be required or might be best um, needed for to, to have a low-cost energy system. And so that, that they, that's the, the process. That's what they're doing now. There'll be a draft version of the second one before Christmas and a final version by March again next year. And they, they basically look at... Uh, this year, they're looking at five different scenarios. Um, uh, one of them in particular is quite, um, quite new and 
interesting in that they're it's the called step plan. the step change scenario, which is essentially looking at a, uh, a, a pathway that is consistent with our Paris Agreement commitments. Or what a good idea that is. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's very, I'm very happy to see that. That's a new thing that's just been introduced, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, they they always had a um, sort of more and less aggressive scenarios in terms of decarbonisation, um, but this is the first time that they've done one that's really quite an aggressive um, scenario that would be yeah consistent with what what we need to do in terms of decarbonising the grid to um, to avoid you know two degrees of uh, warming and move towards one point five. So is that sufficiently developed that you can tell us a bit about it and how plausible it looks? No, not not yet. The, yeah, the draft for that will be coming out in uh, yeah December or so. Um, but they've got all the input assumptions out now and they're, they're modelling away, but there's no sort of results, so to speak. And who is this integrated system plan meant for? Um, I guess it's meant for – originally it was meant for transmission companies, I guess, um, or for for people to look at where there is where where it makes sense to build new transmission lines but um now it's probably it serves a a broader um objective of not only seeing you know what yeah where transmission would be valuable but what what things might we need to think about changing for those for that sort of different system so you have you have things like um you know minimum levels of inertia that probably weren't really an issue in previous um power systems or previous previous versions of the IS or the NTNDP, that's a thing that they now look at in in um, in the new version, so the ISP and the um, both system strength and, and synchronous generation levels. And that means that there's sort of information out there or um, yeah, more more data, et cetera, out there that, that so that the um, market commission, the people that make the rules, can start looking at, you know, what might need to change. If you've just joined us, we're speaking with Dylan McConnell from the Australian German Climate and Energy College at Melbourne University. So, Dylan, on the topic of transmission, mm-hmm. um, there was a, quite a bit of discussion earlier in the year when marginal loss factors were revised. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a bit of background on what these marginal loss factors are and, and what happened with that? Yeah, sure. So, basically, the marginal loss factors represent, I guess, the the average losses across the um, for a power station across the, the network and what so that's the energy that's lost in the process of getting it yes. from the power station to the consumer yeah that's right and so every every power station will have its own loss factor um, now you know if you're a new generator that wants to connect to the grid then you, you, you know you're so so-called a marginal generator you're about to connect you're the next one you'll be given a, a, a loss factor um, and that will affect your that'll affect how much you get paid because you know depending on how much gets lost you'll you'll get essentially your payment will be adjusted based on these um, these loss factors now because they are they're based on um, the average losses of the system over a year, um, they get updated, you know, over time um, in ways that reflect the new generation patterns, new consumption patterns, etc. So, what we've seen is like lots of lots of solar in particular come on come online in the last you know twelve or eighteen months, and that has dramatically affected the losses of the solar plants because they're all essentially producing at the same time. So. Mm. 
because because of um, because of the you know the um, yeah basically you have more losses when it's when you're we've got higher demand and higher production and and so on. Um, solar is particularly affected. So when they revised the the loss factors this year, they revised them down quite a lot, particularly for solar farms, and that financially hurt a lot of. Um, developers because all of a sudden they're getting paid less because they're losing more electricity essentially so do the loss factors depend on the type of renewable generation they they depend on a lot of things but they depend on the um they basically depend on the timing of when you're producing so Mm -hmm. and and also the location so yeah geographical and temporally um sort of resolution now because solar has a particular particularly um you know striking profile it's pretty much all producing at the same time it's not unreasonable to say that yes solar does it is on a technology basis it's technically not because all the coal plants have very different loss factors for example uh, and you know gas plants have different loss factors depending on when they do produce etc but solar is particularly um, correlated and and therefore is um yeah disproportionately affected and i suppose the other fact is that the um, solar and wind areas are in uh, low uh, transmission areas. Yeah, that that can go in both ways. Uh, that can go in both directions. Um, you know, you actually hear about um, solar farms because they, there's also you know sometimes loads out there um, that are far away from the rest of the grid, um, and that means that by putting putting solar plants out there, you actually get a benefit or a um, a, a premium because you're avoiding losses. So mm-hmm. you can have a loss factor that's greater than one, so you get paid more than the price because you're actually producing it close to where it's being generated. Yep. So how are we actually tracking, Dylan, with bringing more renewables into the grid and replacing fossil fuel generators? What sort of percentages are we on these days? Uh, yeah, we're, we're sort of on a gigawatt-hour term. We're over um, over 21% now. Um what so a, that's across the NEM? That's across the NEM, yep. Um, yeah, I should say the NEM, not not just, um, yeah, tend to not, we tend to forget about Western Australia all the time and, yeah. and Northern Territory. Um, but yeah, across the NEM, there is about 21% um, of generation is coming currently coming from renewable energy. Um, okay, but it, at certain times of day or times of year, that's vastly different? Yep, yeah. Uh, we, we had a period over just last weekend where I think it was 47.6%. From in the NEM was in the NEM forty seven point six. So yeah. is that yeah, only going to grow over summer? Um, with solar, n- probably. Uh, it's hard to say. But this time of the year is um is often when we get records like that because it's it's sort of warming up. So there's not as much cooling. Uh, sorry, heating load, and the, the air conditioners haven't been turned on yet. So from a proportional perspective, demand is sort of relatively low. So yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know. Well, we pro- we might get above that. But um, yeah, typically in yeah or, or October is when we get those the big big percentages because we're not we don't have a lot of um, heating and cooling load. So how many gigawatts of new production do we need to completely displace the fossil fuels? Uh, that's a, a bit of a how long's a piece of string kind of question. Um, at the moment, yeah. So we've got about ten gigawatts of um, of renewables at the moment that. Of large-scale renewables, I should say, and if you add rooftop solar, we're probably pushing close to 20 gigawatts, um, and then um, um, hydro is on top of that. So so we've, we have a, quite a lot, I guess, but 
yeah, uh, the amount, the the additional stuff we need is, um, yeah, it, it kind of depends a little bit on what what else we build that's not just um, um, solar PV and wind. There's other technologies like pumped hydro and concentrating solar thermal and um, um, uh, batteries that are also an important part of the, the system um, uh, in, in order to you know ensure we meet our reliability standards and have a functioning grid. Um, and that that mix is. I guess very the mix of those technologies very much um, um, not, not, I wouldn't say contested, but at least it's it's not there's not a, an answer to that that question. So, and I suppose part of that question is how much do we want to generate? Because yes, when that's we right. talk about electrifying industry, introducing mm-hmm. electric vehicles, um, hydrogen manufacture, all those things take electricity. Yeah, that's right, and that's an important point to remember that even you know we often. Sp- spend a lot of time talking about the electricity grid um, but from an energy perspective that's only part of the story and certainly from an emissions perspective it's only part of the story too I think only 34% of our emissions come from from electricity and that they're they are coming down because of renewable energy but if you think about the transport sector uh, they're going up if you think about um, well you, the um, certainly the conventional gas sorry unconventional gas is pushing up our emissions as well so there's there's a whole there's a whole other part of the economy that we need to decarbonize um, and so we do actually not not only do we need to decarbonize the electricity sector but we also need to grow it because electrification is um, the, the the best pathway for those other parts of of the economy so your organization's got some studies and positions on that don't they would you like to tell the listeners yeah, sure. a bit so about that we're, we're Currently, we're, we're, uh, we've looked at a what we're calling a 200% scenario, where that is looking at um, basically building enough renewable energy to provide 100% of our domestic energy needs and 100% of uh, a sort of an export scenario or export um, uh, energy. So, in that case, it's because we're talking about electrifying everything, like electrifying transport and industry and and so on. Um, that means that our our domestic energy electricity demand is actually you know two and a half times bigger than it is now, and then on top of that you have your your potential for export industry and there's a lot of um, options there. Um, the one that seems to have captured the imagination at the moment is um, hydrogen, um, but there's also value added minerals, things like um, um, aluminium, aluminium smelting and iron smelting. That they are very energy intensive. Um, industries and they also need to be de- decarbonised and we actually have a lot of uh, natural competitive advantages in that area because of our renewable energy resources. Um, so amazing in Australia. Mm, we have and BZE highlights that in many of its reports too, mm. the regional ones especially like, um, recently. So, th- so this is a really clear opportunity for us, isn't it? Yes, and absolutely. It's very feasible. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's um, it, one of the n- nice things about looking at the export industries is that it actually makes integration uh, challenges easier, particularly if you have, um, you know, things like flexible electrolyzers, which, you know, they, they can essentially soak up uh, sort of surplus renewable energy and um, basically make the balancing challenge a lot easier. Mm. So you were mentioning before the show that it's actually easier to do more rather than less. Is that, yeah, that's why is that? Yeah, basically because of what I was just what I was just saying is that um, yeah, uh, having to meet, f- for example, exactly one hundred percent of our energy electricity from renewable energy, it's quite a it's quite a tough constraint to meet um, because you know demand has to meet supply at every every half an hour. Now, if you have a flexible demand, this is a 
you know, this is, it's not just for hydrogen, but if you have a flexible demand side, then you can actually, that challenge becomes substantially easier. And if some of these processes we're talking about, whether it's even aluminium smeltering, has quite a degree of flexibility that we haven't really tapped into. Um, and certainly, yeah, electrolyzers and some of the other processes, the flexibility there can actually make the challenge much easier. So we've only got a couple of minutes left, Dylan, but um, I wanted to talk about a, a new research that's just come out from the Clean Energy Council that showed that in the final quarter of 2018, new wind and solar projects capable of generating 4,500 megawatts of power won the full backing from investors, but that's actually collapsed recently to 800 megawatts in each of the first two quarters of 2019. You pointed this out in an article in Renew Economy that this is a 21% drop of investment. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? Why, When you, we're talking about what is needed here, and you've mm-hmm. just highlighted this, why is this happening? Um, it's essentially because the main policy that was pulling through renewable energy investments come to an end, the, the so-called renewable energy target, um, it, it, it's been fulfilled. So at, at, at the moment, there is that, that incentive is not pulling through new investment. Um, so I guess without that underpinning um, new projects, then yeah, we're going to see investment dry up um, or you know, we're going to see state governments sort of move to fill in that void through things like the Victorian Renewable Energy Target or... Queensland, Queensland and Victoria have yeah. got the targets, haven't they? So yeah. does that mean that they'll be less affected? That's the, that. I, I hope that's the case, but it, I guess it remains to be seen. Mm, scary times. So how does it, how does the federal government insist it's meeting the Paris targets given all these issues? Yeah, that's also a good question. Um, yeah, you know they've got a lot of. Um, uh, I think a lot of work to do in terms of, uh, you know, we, we have a fairly weak um, nationally determined contribution as it is, and that, that has to go up. And we're probably going to struggle to meet our weak target at, on current, on the current standings, um, you know, without having some other mechanisms or support in place to, um, to do that. Particularly, I mean, that they might be trying to do some dodgy accounting around, um, you know, using Kyoto credits and all these other things. But uh, it's, yeah, we definitely need more more action, whether that's policy support or some, something um, to to basically help achieve, you know, that, that, that um, objective. Thanks very much, Dylan, for coming in and explaining all this to us. Where can our listeners find out more? Oh, um, I guess they can. There's, um, we've got a website, the Australian... Um, or the Climate and Energy College. You, on that, we often publish our new material. Um, we've also got the, the um, transition Energy Transition Hub website. Um, there's the conversation. A few of our, our workers, uh, our colleagues, um, publish articles on that. So there's yeah, there's plenty yeah, of those, these are two main ones. Great. Mm. Thanks very much, Dylan. No worries. We've been speaking to Dylan McConnell from the Australian German Climate and Energy Institute. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.